Hi, I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast about the cosmopolitan and forward-looking case for radical political and economic freedom. Postmodernism, like Marxism and critical race theory, has become a catch-all term for whatever upsets the right in the culture war. But what if, instead of destroying the libs with logic and reason, the American right has become itself deeply postmodernist, rejecting ideas of objective truth in favor of satisfying but false narratives? Joining me today is Professor Matthew McManus, author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, Neoliberalism, Postmodern Culture, and Reactionary Politics. We discuss the features of postmodernism, as well as the distinct features of postmodern conservatism, and we dig into why postmodern conservatism is on the rise and how it finds its roots in cultural and economic changes. I hope you find our conversation as fascinating as I did. And be sure to stick around to the end for a preview of the next episode of Reimagining Liberty, as well as info on how you can become a supporter and listen to it two weeks early. Contemporary conservatives, especially the very online sorts, talk a lot about postmodernism, but it's not typically a label that they claim for themselves. So what what makes a postmodern conservative? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, you know, I've no even gauged online on a couple of occasions, but it's nice to finally get to chat in person, uh, or at least as close to in person uh, as times allow. But um, so what I kind of make clear in the book is that there's a distinction between what I broadly call postmodern theory and postmodern culture. Um, and this is an analytical distinction that's pretty crucial. Uh, now, there are other ways of understanding postmodernity or postmodernism, you know, as an aesthetic theory is really very popular or an aesthetic approach. Uh, you know, you think about postmodern art or postmodern literature. But these are the two broad categories that I apply. So postmodern theory, um, broadly speaking, is usually associated with a kind of skeptical set of philosophies that emerged in France, uh, depending on how you want to demarcate it between the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, that was largely hegemonic as a kind of leading edge uh, French theory up until about the 1990s or the 2000s, uh, when a lot of the major figures passed away, people like Derrida, for example, right? Uh, and I actually don't have very much to say about postmodern theory, even though it is the primary bugbear, as it were, uh, of the online right. You know, people will say things like, you know, you just infect uh, American academia with enough Derrida, you know, and people will read through algorithmology and they'll wake up the next day and they'll decide they just need to tear down Western civilization, right? Um, I've spent some time in other publications, you know, either refuting or commenting on that, but it wasn't really of great interest to me. Uh, what I commented on in the book is postmodern culture, uh, which I see as the kind of ubiquitous cultural condition or cultural moment, depending on how you want to frame it, uh, in which we all soak. Uh, and I describe it as a reaction uh, to various different trends uh, that have a long history, going back from modernity even into antiquity. Uh, and actually, this is a thesis that's expounded upon a little bit more in my new book, The Emergence of Postmodernity, which people might want to check out. But anyway, we can get into that later on. My argument is that if we understand postmodernism as a cultural condition, then obviously there are going to be various forms of politics that emerge in response to that that are kind of stamped uh, with the features of postmodernity. And I argue that there are many left-wing forms uh, of postmodern politics, many of which you know will be familiar to your listeners. You know, you think about a lot of the kind of identitarian movements uh, or militant particularism, as it's sometimes called, that emerged starting in the 1980s and that really took off, especially in online spaces, you know, in the mid 2000s. Uh, and you know. We can have criticism of those. I happen to be sympathetic to many of them. Uh, but I also argue that conservatism uh, is marked by the impact of the postmodern cultural condition. Uh, now, this isn't a thesis, I should say, that's unique to me. Uh, 
if anything, I would say that the first person who came up with the idea was the political theorist Sheldon Molan uh, in a 1990s paper where he was commenting on Newt Gingrich uh, as a kind of postmodern conservative. Uh, but I understand in a unique way. Uh, and my argument is that the kind of reactionary politics that we've seen emerge in the United States, uh, Canada, and the United Kingdom, and some other places as well, uh, definitely are marked by the features of this postmodern condition. What is it about this particular brand of reactionary politics that's postmodern? Because we've always had we've always had fringy right wing politics, uh, conspiratorial politics, like conspiracy theories are nothing new, misinformation is nothing new. Uh, I mean, they're online a lot and yelling at each other, but you know, we've had that too is nothing new. So is what what sets the current postmodern conservatism apart from prior fringe and far right movements? Sure. And I mean, you're absolutely right. And a lot of my book uh, discusses the antecedents uh, to postmodern conservatism. Uh, and one of the things that I point out is that if you look at the genealogy of postmodern of conservative thought, uh, and of the political right generally, uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that many aspects of the reactionary tradition are amenable to mutation, is the term I use, uh, under the conditions of postmodernity. But there are a few different uh, features that I list in the book. I guess I'll just highlight three, uh, which I think are crucial here. The first is what I call a kind of strategic epistemic skepticism, right? Uh, and I say strategic because, of course, uh, we know that many conservatives are willing to believe even audacious things nowadays uh, that you might think are demonstrates a real lack of skepticism. But I'm, what I'm referring to here is a kind of strategic epistemic skepticism, typically towards uh, the broad claims of the Enlightenment, right? Uh, or Enlightenment rationalism, as it's sometimes called, uh, particularly because those are now broadly associated with uh, liberal elites, uh, various forms of anti-conservative authorities, uh, universities, you name it, right? Now, this isn't ubiquitously true uh, of the conservative movement as a whole, but it is pretty characteristic of postmodern conservatives. Another uh, feature that I highlight is, again, a willingness uh, to actually be less Luddite uh, in its approach to modern technology. And again, this is something that Wolin points out with Newt Gingrich, right? That many conservatives will claim to be deeply concerned about the corrosion of traditional values, traditional forms of life. And that's certainly true of postmodern conservatives. But what's interesting about them is their willingness to use hypermodern media uh, in order to relay their mission uh, and in order to relay their thoughts. Trump was an emblematic figure in that respect, right? Where if you think about it, uh, most of what people knew about how Trump was thinking uh, over the last four years of his presidency, uh, they got through Twitter, right? Uh, and this, of course, also has an impact uh, on the way that conservative politics operates because this fixation on using hypermodern media uh, itself creates a kind of hyper-real, to use the Baudrillardian term, uh, environment in which the kind of uh, conservative political movement mobilizes itself. And there are other things that we can talk about with that regard. And I suppose the last thing uh, that's important to talk about is um, in the book, I bring up uh, Wendy Brown and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and also Carl Schmitt. And I discuss the way that postmodern conservatism is distinctly marked by a kind of resentment-driven uh, politics, right? And this is really important because resentment is typically associated with political movements uh, on the left, Right. Uh, going all the way back to somebody like Nietzsche, where Nietzsche would describe uh, these kinds of egalitarian movements as motivated not so much by a desire to actually help the poor, uh, but by a desire to kind of screw over the rich and the powerful, right? Now, you can take issue with that. I think that there are, is some credibility or tenability to this thesis, at least with certain kinds of left-wing movements, even though I'm distinctly a man of the left, right? I can say on my own side, I've met people who fit that profile, right, sadly. Uh, but I argued that you definitely also see it uh, on the political right with postmodern conservatism. But the kind of resentment driven politics that you see on the political right with postmodern conservatism is a little bit different 
right? Uh, because while political movements on the left that are motivated by ressentiment do exist, they're usually motivated by this demand for inclusion uh, and the history that they use to make that demand uh, usually runs something like we've never been included uh, in the broader culture or, or in politics and we demand inclusion now. Right, we demand political power and agency that we've never possessed before. Right, and you can even see that um, with certain movements, like say the Bernie Sanders campaign, right, uh, which I have again a tremendous amount of sympathy for. I should say, uh, as long as it's not motivated by ressentiment. Uh, but on the political right, what you see ressentiment, what you see uh, the form of ressentiment take is a little bit different. Where there's usually this narrative of decline and fall, right? Where um, postmodern conservative politicians will say, "Once upon a time, you possessed something." Right, you possess certain status, you possess certain privileges, you possess a certain level of affluence, and that has been taken away from you um, by these groups, uh, or maybe not even taken away so much as it has been granted by, to these groups, uh, which undermines uh, its kind of distinctiveness uh, for you, right? Because if these privileges and this status is democratized, then it makes you less special, right? Uh, and so the argument then is, you put your faith in me, and I'll restore those kind of privileges and those statuses. Uh, and the associated kind of politics with that is, of course, saying uh, that'll take the form of pushing these people back down into their place, right? Or at the very least, undercutting their efforts uh, to democratize politics uh, and to create a more conclusive cultural environment. And you really saw this kind of rhetoric all over the Trump campaign, right? Uh, I mean, it's very hard to think of a more ressentiment-driven politics than Trumpism uh, in the 21st century. Maybe there is, but I certainly can't think of one. How does this differ then from fascism? which fascist movements in the past have typically been they've been willing to embrace technological change and more modern stuff than other conservative movements they also tend to have that strongman leader who preaches a return to status for whatever class it is um the conservative class that feels like it's been excluded or its status has been stripped like is this is postmodern conservatism a new kind of fascism, or is there a difference between those kinds of movements? It absolutely can become one, okay? And I should say that when I wrote the initial book back in 2018, I was resistant uh, to this characterization. Uh, but gauging more uh, with the history of the far right and also talking to some experts, including people uh, like Richard Evans uh, or reading the work of Bob Paxton has convinced me that – or Jason Stanley – that there might be some tenability to the argument that maybe what we're seeing is a kind of postmodern fascism, right? Or again, a fascism marked by certain uh, postmodern characteristics. But very broadly speaking, uh, the reason why when I wrote the book, I was resistant uh, to this thesis is there are definitely considerable overlaps between postmodern conservatism and the early fascist movements, right? Again, as you pointed out, a willingness to embrace these new technologies as a way of advancing a revanchist message, um, this faith uh, in a kind of authoritarian strongman leader who comes to power on the basis of uh, his charisma and also this kind of ressentiment directed against left-wing movements. And that's something that's not broadly understood, right? Uh, the kind of classical examples of fascism that we point to, uh, the PNF and the NSDAP, uh, Italy and Germany, uh, there's sometimes this caricature made by Anglos, uh, which suggests that both of these countries were inherently authoritarian uh, or inherently reactionary. Uh, actually, in both of these countries, um, communist and social democratic movements were extremely strong. Right. Uh, people talk a lot about, for instance, the million man strong Communist Party that existed uh, in Italy in the early uh, 1920s. Right. Uh, or the SPD and the Communist Party, which were overwhelmingly popular uh, in large segments of Germany uh, up through the 1930s. Right. Uh, and fascism garnered a lot of its appeal by saying, look, traditional conservatives aren't actually able to get the job done uh, in terms of quelling these movements. You need to put your faith in us to do it instead. 
Uh, and interestingly enough, many traditional conservative movements were resistant uh, in some attempts, uh, in some senses, to these efforts because they didn't want to share power. And they also were concerned about the mass appeal of fascism. But they nevertheless compromised with it because the argument was typically you know, better Mussolini or better Hitler uh, than you know, the Communist Party and Gramsci in power. And uh, another sense in which uh, you can talk, and you can see uh, features of that with Trumpism, right, as well, uh, this kind of argument that traditional Republican elites aren't able to get the job done. We've ceded too much ground to the left. Uh, you need to put your faith in this much more dynamic populist leader uh, in order to kind of roll back the tide of history, as it were. Uh, and sometimes this sentiment was extremely uh, explicitly expressed. Um, you think about Michael Anton, right, his uh, famous essay, The United 93 Election. Anton... Um, writing under a pseudonym, uh, talked about the United 93 election in 2016 as a kind of linchpin moment for conservatism, uh, where he essentially says, look, you know, we've ceded and lost so much over the last 20 years. Uh, we can barely even call ourselves a successful conservative movement any longer. Uh, yeah, it might seem dangerous uh, to give a demagogue like Trump power, but, you know, we either do that uh, or we just concede the ground forever. Uh, and I, for one, you know, this is Anton speaking, uh, know where I'm going to lay my sword, whose sword... Uh, or sorry, uh, who's got my sword and who uh, who's back I'm going to be uh, supporting. Uh, and another kind of feature of fascism uh, that's really emblematic uh, and also you could associate with postmodern conservatism uh, is, again, this kind of spectacular politics uh, that's associated with both, right? Uh, conventional conservatism tends to pride itself on not mobilizing mass energy all that frequently, uh, in part because it's long held this deep antipathy uh, towards something like democracy. Um, but... Fascism, right, was one of the first right-wing movements to really say that mass society isn't going away. Uh, you need to have this kind of broad support in order to entrench right-wing movements. Uh, and so what we need is a charismatic leader who's going to give us an exciting and extravagant politics uh, that'll keep energy high and keep support uh, rolling in, right? And you also see that feature with postmodern conservatism. Uh, one of the things that I think is really distinct, though, and this is what I argued in the book, uh, is that both of the fascist movements uh, – in addition to being culturally revanchist, uh, we're also territorially revanchist, right? Uh, and this was associated with their militaristic and imperial ambitions. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to think of Mussolini um, or Hitler without thinking Second World War, invasion of Poland, uh, this titanic effort uh, in a sense to overwhelm uh, their geopolitical enemies and establish fascist hegemony uh, over the entire globe. Uh, and this was an explicit mission, I should say, uh, of people like Goebbels. And you never really saw that with something like Trumpism, right? If anything, uh, it's kind of nativism, it's anti-militarism, not anti-militarism, it's anti-militaristic adventurism, right? Uh, didn't conform uh, to this pattern. And I think that's a very important feature of fascism. Uh, nevertheless, um, people like Faxon convinced me that there might be overlap, more overlap than I thought, uh, particularly after something like January 6th. Right where you did see uh, Trumpism take a more militaristic uh, or strongman type form, uh, and even though that wasn't necessarily directed outwards, uh, again, a lot of the kind of alarm bells were going off at that moment. So I'm not sure I might revise my thesis in the future if it continues down that road. Part of the problem of being a cultural commentator is you kind of have to respond to events as they occur, and you call it as you see it, and sometimes things change. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of overlap. I'm still hesitant to say that they're the same. Um, even though there can be a very constructive comparison between the two. One of the more provocative points that you make is about postmodern conservatism's relationship to the truth or objective truth or reason or rationality. And I say provocative because we are all we all have seen conservative media pundits 
either sharing stories about destroying libs with logic and reason or or talking about how it's it's the left that rejects truth and is a bunch of relativists and so on uh but you point out that a relationship a kind of rejection of absolute truth has a longer history within conservatism even prior to postmodern conservatism than than a lot of conservatives admit. And so you say, when your essays, you say perhaps the most important predecessor of postmodern conservatism is Edmund Burke. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I'm sure that'll be for potential conservative listeners, that sounds mighty odd. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I should say, uh, I'm writing a new book right now, uh, The Political Right and Inequality uh, for Rutledge Press, where I elaborate on this uh, in much greater detail. So uh, I think that Burke uh, and De Maestra, who are the two major figures I examine in this respect, were given a bit of short shrift. Uh, but then again, you know, they weren't the main topic. But if you're interested in seeing my elaborated thoughts on this, uh, that's the place to go. But look, the, the long story is, typically speaking, uh, what you see, at least in American conservatism, European conservatism is a little more sensitive on this point, uh, is the argument that somebody like, say, Karl Marx right, uh, was a deep critic of Western civilization and is really at the basis of a lot of these kinds of anti-Enlightenment bugbears uh, that they despise so much. That's actually not really true, right? If you look at somebody like Karl Marx, whatever else you think about his arguments, right? And there are plenty of problems with them. Uh, I'm sure you would agree, right? Uh, he, considered, uh, he considered himself a mature Enlightenment theorist who was completing the project of classical political economy. He identified with the scientific revolution all the time, right? Uh, and often claimed that he was making not just scientific evaluations of society, but scientific predictions about what was going to happen, many of which, as you know, didn't end up coming true. Uh, or if they did come true, certainly not in the way that he thought, right? Uh, and again, whatever you think about that, you know, he's a mature Enlightenment thinker, right? Somebody like Edmund Burke actually, in many respects, launches a far more profound uh, and interesting critique uh, of the Enlightenment uh, at the end of the 18th century. Uh, and it's worth noting also that he was the moderate one uh, in right-wing circles at that time. Somebody like Joseph de Maestra, who's another uh, seminal figure that I talk about in the book, was much more vitriolic, right? Uh, and the basis of their critique is Burke is a kind of a soft skeptic uh, arguing, look, uh, I said all the way back in the mid-century uh, that the influence of reason on human affairs is far less uh, than people ever suppose it could be. Uh, actually, a lot of people are bound by irrational and effective ties uh, to their traditions, to their ways of life, to the hierarchies that are associated uh, with those ways of life. And reason can criticize them, sure, uh, but what is it really putting in their place? Uh, it's putting this kind of nihilistic, destructive uh, demand for equality and democracy in its place uh, that can only be carried out by the radical transformation of society that's going to only be achievable, that's only going to be achievable through something like violence, which you see with the Jacobin movement, right? Uh, and a lot of the ways that he tries to defend um, the Ancien Regime, uh, or at least a kind of a foreign version of the Ancien Regime, which is what he wanted, uh, is through affective appeals, right? Uh, either beatifying uh, certain features of traditionalist society, talking, for instance, about the little platoons uh, that bind society together that many people don't question all that much. They certainly don't interrogate them using reason, uh, or by sublimating the Austrian regime, uh, talking again about this, uh, to use Wollstonecraft's term, gothic contract uh, that exists between the living, the dead, and those not yet to be born. Uh, and kind of turning the contractarian tradition on its head by saying, how dare you think that you can change the social contract uh, once the dead have already established the parameters of the society in which you live? Uh, and Wilson Craft, again, was one of the first people to say, this is a completely irrational argument, right? It's an appeals to affect, to gothic drama, to beauty, 
to these kind of sublime qualities. Uh, and it can be rhetorically very appealing, but it's very hard to kind of piece out what the actual argument for these positions is, uh, besides the fact that, look, we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, why shouldn't we continue to do it? Right. Uh, and again, Burke, you know, was a kind of moderate Whig. Um, and if anything, uh, a lot of people were surprised to see him uh, be so critical of the French Revolution because he did endorse certain kinds of reforms uh, early on in his career, uh, which itself is kind of a fascinating story to talk about. But somebody like Joseph de Maistre, right, uh, is a much, much more overt critic uh, of Enlightenment reason, uh, where he spares nothing uh, in saying that philosophy, as the Enlightenment philosophers understood it, is fundamentally, and I quote, a destructive force, right? Uh, it has this disintegrationist quality uh, because every political union isn't predicated on reason, and it's certainly not predicated on consent. Uh, it's predicated upon treating uh, the dogmas of your society like what they are, dogmas, right? Uh, and these should usually be sublimated further uh, by religious grandeur or religious association, uh, which is why he draws this kind of tight association between the monarch uh, and the state. Uh, and where none of that functions effectively, uh, he says, well, then we can look at the hangman or the executioner uh, as the real glue that holds civil society together. Uh, because one of the ways that you can impart this kind of religious sensibility onto traditional institutions and traditional authorities uh, is by the exercise of just spectacular instances of violence, right? Uh, that kind of give a terrifying grandeur uh, to power uh, that most people aren't willing to effectively challenge. Uh, and when it comes to the Enlightenment philosophers, he often will compare them actually quite expressly uh, to Lucifer uh, in the Miltonian sense, right? Uh, sometimes that's not even a kind of metaphor. Sometimes he actually does seem to imply that the devil literally inspired this kind of uh, revolution. Uh, because he argues, look, you know, what they're doing is putting forward atheistic, rationalistic, scientific, materialist philosophies that undermine uh, this religious approach to political ideas. Uh, and he's saying they're telling everyone that they should think for themselves. But I say that if everyone starts to think for themselves, then everyone's going to reach different conclusions because reason points in so many different directions. Uh, and there's not going to be anything that binds society together. And so what are you going to have? Again, chaos, disruption nihilism, all these kind of awful things um, that the political right obsesses over through the course of the 19th century. So again, whatever you think of both of these authors, and I think both of them are very interesting, right? They're defiantly um, critical uh, of the Enlightenment tradition. De Maistre much more so than Burke, but Burke is also quite critical of it. Uh, and the radicalness uh, of their kind of anthropological, aesthetic, and religious critiques uh, of Enlightenment uh, means that they're going to have a profound influence uh, on the political right uh, down to the present day. So this relationship to truth is is really interesting because you you end up framing it's not just a rejection of truth, but it's often you know when we watch people like Marjorie Taylor Greene ranting on or Trump, there's there's a it's not that they are speaking a consistent set of untruths; it's that they're often just flat out incoherent contradictory it's just meandering from one falsehood to another even if those falsehoods are in conflict with each other and so on yeah i mean last i saw trump apparently told uh this is politifact something like eleven thousand to fifteen thousand lies over the course of his presidency I mean, that should really almost be impossible right i mean that's many lies over the course of a day right i mean you think you'd almost just stumble into telling the truth more often than that anyway sorry yeah it's and and it's interesting that part of it in relation to so I you know have spent the last nearly decade and a half in the Washington public policy scene, and 
one of the fascinating things when Trump came in is it didn't just that, you know, lots of people in the policy scene didn't like the guy or thought the policies that he was pushing for were bad, but that he kind of fundamentally changed the relationship of the conservative movement to to public policy. You know, we used to have like when the Heritage Foundation was in charge, there's lots of problems with the Heritage Foundation, but they were like public policy wonks doing public policy and issuing recommendations that then got picked up by conservative lawmakers and so on. But there was just a rejection of that. And so what is this postmodern kind of rejection of central narratives and this complicated relationship to truth mean for postmodern conservatism as a governing philosophy, as a philosophy that tries to get elected and then presumably once you're elected, you have to do things in the public policy world? Well, I, I think that there's two things to be said about this. Uh, one is kind of a surface point, and then there's a more historical and uh, kind of deep point. The surface point is that the conservative tradition has always been willing to put its faith uh, in men of agency uh, and personal clarity, uh, as it were, uh, if it considers them to be so deserving. Uh, you know, F.A. Hayek wrote a very influential and very interesting essay called uh, Why I'm Not a Conservative. Why I'm not a conservative. Uh, and he said the difference between conservatism and the kind of right-wing liberalism that he endorsed, and you know, I know I'm coming back and we're going to talk about Nozick, we can have a chat about that later on, uh, is that a right-wing liberal will say, look, there are certain inequities that you need to have in society. These will be the result of market transactions, you know, the familiar story. Uh, but it doesn't hold fundamentally that there are more deserving people. It just says that, you know, the market has its operations and losses and riches uh, fall where they lie, right? Uh by contrast, the conservative tradition has always held that there are certain demonstrably or evidently superior people, uh, and political agency belongs with them uh, because they have the kind of vision, aptitude, uh, and guts to do what no one else is going to do. And this can give uh, the conservative tradition kind of a schizophrenic quality to it, uh, since this faith in leaders, as it were, uh, means that, you know, the principles that they'll stand for could really vary a lot over time since the leader has a strong role in defining uh, what it is that the movement believes in. You don't really see that uh, with liberal politicians or even with socialist politicians who almost always, uh, even in the case of kind of charismatic circumstances like, say, Bolshevism, uh, the leader nonetheless at least claims adherence uh, to a kind of universalistic enlightenment dogma, no matter how vacuous it is uh, and how tyrannical uh, his uh, his politics and policies end up being in practice, right? Uh, but, you know, the deeper point is that the conservative tradition, uh, again, has been extremely varied, uh, in part because this yearning uh, for a kind of ideological attachment to the idea that there are demonstrably superior people is attached to a broader metaphysical yearning uh, for a kind of organic society uh, in which there is a form of social stratification. Uh, everyone understands their place within it. Uh, people are broadly speaking content with their place uh, and everyone has a role to play. It's not like the top can do without the bottom or vice versa, uh, but these are not equal roles, right? There are some people who are demonstrably superior. They have a superior role and consequently they are rewarded with higher degrees of agency, affluence, power, status, you name it, right? Uh, and this usually is given a kind of sublime or even transcendent quality to it in conservative literature, right? Uh, Russell Kirk made this point uh, in his book, The Conservative Mind, right, where he talks about how it is that conservatives believe in a kind of transcendent moral order uh, that exceeds human creation. And it almost always takes this extremely hierarchical form, right? The idea that if we order society properly with the right people at the top and the right people at the bottom, everything will go well. Uh, but 
the particular ways this form is understood and the particular people who deserve to be at the top and the people that deserve to be at the bottom really varies a lot depending on the conservative or the person on the political right. And it's been understood in a truly bewildering number of different ways, right? Uh, more right-wing, uh, sorry, more market-friendly conservatives will often think that the market plays a role uh, in kind of creating this pyramidal structure. Uh, you know, uh, think about somebody like Ayn Rand, right, and her more uh, pro-capitalist moments, uh, where she'll say things like, well, you know, capitalism isn't just about creating goods. It's about allocating to the deserving people, uh, you know, the resources that they need to be creative. Uh, and the second-handers, they wind up at the bottom because that's where they're supposed to be, right? Uh, then you can also think about people who are on the far right who will understood this, uh, understand this in explicitly racialist terms or racist terms, right? Where there's this pyramidal structure, uh, there's the superior race that's supposed to be at the top, it's going to be very narrow, uh, and then there's the subordinate or subhumans uh, that lie at the bottom. Right? Or you can understand it in ethno-religious terms, right? where there's this idea that we are the people that have a certain chosen mission uh, or who are ordained by God or have access to privileged transcendent truths. Uh, this means that you know, we have a right to kind of instill our beliefs uh, over the broader society, uh, or at least to make sure that they're operationally hegemonic. Right? Uh, and because there's so much variance in how conservatives understand this kind of transcendent uh, organic ordering uh, that they prefer. Uh, it can also mean that the movement itself can be hard to understand from the outside looking in. Because you might just say, like, why are you people talking about so many different things? What is it that you actually believe? But the constant, again, uh, is this conviction uh, underpinning uh, every part of this movement or every uh, element of this movement, that if you just get the right people at the top, then everything will go well. And the biggest problems that emerge in society is, frankly, people not knowing their place, right? Uh, and starting to think that they are entitled to degrees of political agency that they're not actually entitled to. Uh, and sometimes this is made extremely explicit. So for instance, uh, the great conservative philosopher, Roger Scruton, who I'm actually quite fond of, right? Uh, in his early book, The Meaning of Conservatism, uh, had a very telling passage where he says that there is something really praiseworthy from a conservative perspective in what he called unthinking people, uh, people who resign themselves to the problems they see in life and do not seek to place blame uh, where they don't immediately expect for there to be any kind of recourse, right? And what else is that but a kind of belief that, look, if you're at the bottom, uh, do what you can at the bottom to try to improve yourself, but don't sit there and blame the organic hierarchy of society for your problems because all you're going to do is create disruptions uh, and lead to a desublimation uh, of this kind of social ordering that ultimately benefits all of us and you, even though you might not know it. Now, postmodern conservatism is has these postmodern characteristics, but it's also, you argue, like the reason we have it now as opposed to 40 years ago or whatever, the reason that Trumpism is as powerful as it is, is a reaction to the postmodern epoch and and our the economic ordering and cultural ordering and the features of that. So can you go into the I guess the environment, how you describe the environment that postmodern conservatism comes out of and is a reaction to? Like what what are those features that led to it? Absolutely. Well I mean I make the argument in the new book uh that the three catalysts uh, for the emergence of postmodern culture uh were liberalism, capitalism and secularism. Uh and 
the kind of dialectical relations between them. Uh, and I want to point out that I'm not uh, a uniform critic of postmodern culture, and I'm certainly not a uniform critic of liberalism, capitalism, or secularism. Uh, you know, identify as a liberal, you know, liberal socialist, and I happen to have a lot of good things to say about it. Uh, so what I'm just trying to do is offer a description uh, of this kind of cultural moment. Uh, but there are negative features, uh, certainly from a conservative standpoint, to postmodern culture. Uh, and one of them is this corrosion of what Charles Taylor calls sources of the self or sources of identity, right? Uh, because a lot from a conservative standpoint, many of the ways that people understood who they are, what their identity was, uh, are determined by the traditional societies in which they live. And of course, the status uh, that a conservative typically enjoys uh, within those kind of traditional societies. And you can see this, you know, mapped in a lot of different ways, you know, the relative status uh, in the... 1950s, uh, that whites would enjoy compared to people of color, or men would enjoy relative to women, uh, or uh, straights would enjoy relative to gays. Uh, and what you see over the course of postmodernity uh, is an opening up of political space to challenge uh, both those traditional communities and the hierarchies that are associated with them, and consequently the status uh, that conservatives perceive themselves as enjoying within those communities. Uh, and we can have some sympathy uh, for their belief that these constant challenges corrode the sen their sense of who they are uh, by taking all of this away, right? Uh, what I don't have any kind of sympathy for uh, is the argument that the only way to retain uh, a sense of identity or a sense of selfhood uh, that is solid uh, is through recreating uh, these kind of hierarchies through authoritarian means uh, and by quashing uh, the descent of people who really were just agitating for a long overdue uh, slice of political power that they should have been given at the inauguration uh, of the United States, right? particularly people of color, women, uh, and LGBTQ individuals. Now, you mentioned capitalism is one of the catalysts for this. And a few episodes ago, we did an episode on Marxism with Ian Bennett of Epoch Philosophy. And I asked him this, but I'll, I'll ask you this. Um, what do you mean by capitalism? Because it gets used in a lot of like, Libertarians often use capitalism as just a synonym for a free market economy, um, but then like free market anti-capitalists of the left libertarian sort uses something different. Like what, what do you mean by capitalism? Well, I should say, again, uh, as a kind of liberal socialist, I do actually endorse markets, right? You know, my kind of socialism is a market socialism. I just tend to believe in worker co-ops rather than capitalist-owned firms, right, uh, along with an extensive welfare state. Again, we can get into that later on when we talk about Nozick, right? But but look, the way that I understand capitalism uh, is as a revolutionary mode of production, right, where political power and socioeconomic power is concentrated in the hands of capital, right, uh, which wedges or hedges that power uh, in order to profit, right, uh, to profit itself. That's putting it really simply, right? Uh, and the reason why I associate this with the emergence of postmodernity, and I want to point out again uh, that I'm Marxist enough to say that I'm not exactly critical of this in every respect, is one of the features that you see of conventional capitalism for all its problems was a corrosion a lot of, these, of a lot of these traditionalist communities, right, uh, and the hierarchies associated with them. Uh, and Marx, for instance, is very explicit about this, where he says, look, what happened, right? Uh, you had an ancien regime. Uh, there were aristocratic forms of socioeconomic organization. Uh, these were extremely calcified, uh, and it concentrated power in the hands of people who really were clearly unworthy of it. Uh, with the emergence of bourgeois society and capitalism, you see a new liberal bourgeois class emerge uh, that's a lot more intelligent, a lot more dynamic, uh, and a lot more progressive, and it tears down this old way of doing things and replaces these kinds of traditional communities and hierarchies uh, with one that's much more dynamic, uh, much more upwardly mobile, 
uh, much more productive. Right? And I approve of a lot of that, actually. Uh, I don't approve uh, of you know, the exploitation of the environment or the inequality that results in it. But again, we can get into that another day. But it's worth understanding that the conservative tradition, at it from its very inauguration, uh, less so with Burke, but certainly with someone like Demaestra, has always mourned uh, this development. Uh, and this is something, again, that Hayek makes very explicit, right? Because at the epicenter of capitalist uh, ideology, right, uh, is this kind of meritocratic ethos, this idea that we're going to have an upwardly mobile society where the people at the top will continuously change places uh, because if you work hard and you save your pennies and you know you have a talent, you can rise to the top. And if you don't, then you'll fall to the bottom. Uh, and while certain kind of conservatives are amenable to that meritocratic outlook, many of them aren't. Right, uh, or they think that the kind of capitalist meritocratic ethos uh, is the wrong one to apply to these circumstances. Many of them uh, want to return uh, to something that's a lot more stable, a lot more orderly, uh, and that puts different kinds of people at the top uh, than what the market would allow. Uh, a good example of that would be ethno-nationalists or integralists, right? Um, who have a great deal of sympathy uh, for many features of what we sometimes call the Ansham regime. And they'll say, look, why should markets be allowed to dictate who has the power in our society? Uh, why shouldn't religious uh, or nationalist sensibilities take over, right? Uh, you can even find some monarchists now who will say, why can't we have like a kind of monarchical regime uh, that would uh, disempower uh, many different people and allow them to kind of go on their lives without having to worry themselves about politics, right? Uh, so when I talk about this kind of revolutionary quality to capitalism and the way that it led to the emergence of postmodernity, that's what I'm talking about, right? Now, in terms of my criticism of postmodernity, I'm not going to lie to you, a lot of them relate back uh, to the inequalities that I see as emerging within a capitalist society. Uh, but I don't think that those are intrinsic uh, to the emergence of postmodernity. I think that they're a different kind of problem that we need to tackle using different means. I want to go back real briefly to say you mentioned early on in the conversation that there was a one of the things that postmodern conservatism was reacting to was like a destabilizing of sources of meaning, that these traditional sources of meaning. And capitalism has been around for longer than Trumpism has, at least like a while, um, and longer than postmodern conservatism. And but it does seem like for quite a long time, capitalism was like life in the capitalist order was more stable in the sense that you had I'm thinking of the like the line like what's good for general motors is good for america like you had these these large companies that were legacy companies stuck around for a long time and people the expectation was you went to you you went to work for a firm and then you were with that firm until you retired you know, and this is like my parents, my dad retired after 35 years at General Motors, um, and that was the norm. And and people could establish meaning in their in their careers. I am a company man, but it does seem like that has shifted much more recently that I, I know like job tenure, average job tenure is, I believe, in decline. Um, people don't young, especially younger generations, millennials and youngers don't expect to necessarily work at the same place for, I mean, I've had like three, I've been at three different institutions over the last three years. So yeah, it's, you know. it seems yeah. to be much more common. And I mean, it's a cliche in DC that the first thing you do upon meeting someone is ask them what they do because everyone in DC like forms their entire identity within and around and beginning with their, their job. But that's not the case 
elsewhere. So is that a difference in contemporary capitalism where it's almost you – because know, there's this shift to – like say the gig economy is exemplifying this. It almost feels like a shift from like status to contract in the employment relationships where we just have contractual relationships as opposed to like we see ourselves as members of this organization. Is that is that part of this, that even that source of meaning is being stripped away? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the uh, things that I argue for in the book, right? That uh, at the very least within uh, you know the 1950s to the 1960s, uh, there was a kind of solidaristic dimension uh, to various forms of capitalism uh, and social democracy that stressed, look, that we're going to create an economy that's going to work for everybody. Uh, and this is going to be associated with higher degrees of democratization, higher degrees of participation, uh, the formation of civic associations like labor movements, right, uh, that can provide the kind of glue that will hold people together because it provides them with a sense of identity and more importantly, uh, it provides them with a sense of political agency, right, where they can see themselves as having an impact uh, both in their communities and in the workplace at a local level through things like unionization uh, and at the national level through their union, right, uh, and also through, you know, these new forms of um, political democracy that, that are emerging in the national level, right? Uh, that's less relevant when it comes to the U.S. context, but it's very relevant if you look at Europe, for example, right? Uh, and what you see in the 1980s with the advent of what's sometimes called neoliberalization uh, is a transition away from this kind of solidaristic understanding of capitalism uh, to one more superficially, at least, uh, more hyper-individualistic, more competitive, uh, and more in line with what Margaret Thatcher would put forward, right? That there is no such thing as society, they're only individuals, and they need to look after themselves. Right. Uh, and there are obviously a lot of very interesting left wing criticisms that one could make about this. I don't really want to get into those, though, because what's interesting and what has never really been talked about to the same extent uh, is how much conservatives uh, actually were concerned about this. Going all the way back again to somebody like Russell Kirk or Roger Scruton, right, uh, where they would say it's not enough uh, just to have this hyper competitive uh, meritocracy. We need a glue that's much thicker uh, than this. Uh, and the other problem with this, of course, is that too much neoliberalization and too much individualism is going to lead to the corrosion of different kinds of traditional communities and hierarchies within our society uh, that we can't have. A good example of this would be things like open borders, right? And, you know, as a libertarian, I know that you've endorsed this uh, at various points, and so have I, right? Uh, because, you know, from a purely capitalist standpoint, you might say things like, why do we even need uh, a nation state, right? Uh, why not just let people move and go where the jobs are? Right. Uh, and I would actually have some sympathy with that, by the way. Right. Uh, you know, why impose or these I would just say it doesn't need to be where the jobs are. It can be where their family is or where the cultural institutions they're drawn to are. Like, it doesn't need to be a strictly economic thing. Yeah, 100 percent. And look, I, I'm married to a Mexican. Right. Uh, and I've lived all around. I love a world uh, in many cases without borders. And I think in many cases it would be a more moral world. Right. Uh, but that's not something that many conservatives were amenable to, of course, because that would lead to the dissolution of certain forms of power and certain concentrations uh, of power uh, that they want. Uh, and for a long time, this kind of conservative standpoint was not sidelined. It was always present, uh, but certainly not as muscularly authoritative uh, as it has been in the last couple of years. Uh, so what you've seen uh, with Trump is the reemergence uh, of these sensibilities with a vengeance, uh, but I would argue also coupled with certain elements uh, of the neoliberal ethos. Uh, because while Trump is critical uh, of things like uh, liberal individualism or capitalist individualism and does appeal to things like the nation, to the community, to religion. Uh, he does also still take this hyper-competitive ethos uh, to an extreme. Uh, and I think it's no surprise uh, that his kind of emblematic phrase is that everyone who doesn't agree with what I agree with is a loser, right? 
because what you really see with Trump uh, is the worst coagulation uh, of many dimensions of right-wing thought. Uh, you have this kind of hyper-meritocratic sensibility that emerges in neoliberalism that divides the world into winners and losers and says those who get up at the top rose there by their own merits and owe nothing to people at the bottom, and the people at the bottom are losers, right? If that's where they are, then that's where they belong. Uh, except this reasoning is extended more broadly than just the market to things like geopolitics, to things like race, to things like ethnicity, religion, uh, where white Protestant uh, males uh, are considered to be at the top because that's where they belong, uh, and everyone else lives in shithole countries or weird, lives in weird religions, uh, and why should they have any slice of the pie when they don't deserve it, right? And I think this is a very toxic politics we need to reject. How does that, though, play into the fact that this is – so I know that the actual polling data shows that Trumpism was not necessarily like a working class – movement that there were a lot of and a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol were middle class business owners and so on. But there's an image of it. And certainly this is a case for populism more generally that it is it is a movement of the less wealthy, the less educated and generally the the lower or at least declining in status in social status people. And so those would be all the people who in the way you just described Trump's worldview would be the losers, right? Not the winners. So how do those two things, I mean, I know we talked about incoherence earlier, but like, how do those two things fit together? No, I mean, that's a fascinating question. Uh, and to talk about that, we need to go beyond just discussing postmodern conservatism to talk about the political right more generally, right? So the political right, starting with Burke uh, and Demaestra, was born uh, out of this kind of anti-democratic and anti-liberal sentiment, right? Uh, and there are Deep features of that, uh, which are still very much with us, right? Which we can talk about if you're interested. Uh, but nevertheless, starting around uh, the 19th century, the mid-19th century, uh, there was a realization on the part of the political right that democracy and mass society weren't going away, right? That the people had kind of tasted power, they liked it, uh, and they weren't going to give it up. Uh, and so what you start to see was conservatism to demonstrate a remarkable adaptability uh, by being able to include and incorporate a kind of populist dimension uh, to a lot of its politics. And usually this took the form of, yes, advocating for a kind of elitist politics, uh, but also making the claim that other elements or other uh, classes in society could have a slice of the pie. Right, They could be at the top of the hierarchy as well, maybe not as high, but they could be there. Uh, and the problem was, of course, all the rest of the uh, leftist political movements uh, that were a threat to the status that uh, conservatives were willing to grant to this new group. Right, uh, And a good example of that, for instance, uh, would be something like a lot of the kind of uh, Caesarist movements that emerged in mid-19th century Europe, uh, particularly things like uh, Napoleon III, for example, right, who campaigned, yes, uh, on an argument to kind of quash socialism uh, and on a campaign uh, to kind of restore the status uh, of the aristocracy and restore France's Arab political power uh, and imperial power. Uh, but also made some gestures towards labor unions and said things like, you know, the French white working class uh, should be given a share uh, of the pie that hasn't been given before. Uh, and I guess I'm going to be an emperor and an aristocrat, but I'll be the people's emperor, right? Uh, and this, as you say, might seem a bit incoherent, but it can be extraordinarily appealing, right? Um, because, you know, the working class sadly doesn't have a kind of monopoly uh, on anti-hierarchical thinking and anti-hierarchical sentiments. Many people are very comfortable uh being at the top uh, of their own little world if it means they get to be at the top, right? Sad but true. Uh, and you really see this expressed uh, with somebody like Donald Trump, 
right? Where Donald Trump never promised, uh, except in some very, very rare moments at the beginning, uh, to fundamentally do anything to challenge the power uh, of capital, uh, for instance, in the United States. Uh, and he certainly wasn't doing anything to say challenge white hegemony uh, or wasp hegemony in the United States, right? Uh, his argument was typically, look, uh, the white working class once enjoyed a level of status and privileges, particularly white working class men, uh, relative to other groups. And these are now being taken away by all these woke activists uh, who are telling them that all of a sudden they got to call it, tolerate uh, these migrants coming in, also competing for their jobs, also competing uh, for status, uh, also competing for kind of uh, cultural currency. They shouldn't have to put up with that. So put your faith in me uh, and people like me, uh, and we'll put these individuals back in their place. Uh, and to use the uh, well-known phrase, they're not going to be cutting in line anymore, uh, trying to claim things that they don't deserve. Uh, and this can be extremely appealing, right? Uh and I do want to point out again uh, that in the United States, the kind of conception of Trumpism as a working class movement was also uh, partly an artifice, right? If you look at polling data, it consistently shows that uh, party allegiance still breaks down a lot by wealth. Uh, and the Republicans overwhelmingly uh, tend to enjoy uh, the votes of people who are better situated in the United States, right? Uh, but nonetheless, the kind of rhetorical appeal uh, is important. Uh, and it did work well enough uh, to capture uh, voters in Mich places like Michigan or Wisconsin, right, uh, who became convinced to buy into this narrative. And I think that I can have some sympathy for that because in many of these states, uh, we've seen precarious standards of living for individuals uh, in blue-collar professions for a very long time. Very little was done to actually help them by the Democratic Party. Uh, and a lot of people I've talked to uh, who are kind of working-class Trump supporters said – we kind of rolled the dice on this and just said, if things aren't going to get better and he's promising us that there'll be change, change of any sort might just be the thing to go for. And one thing that I kept thinking about as I was reading your book and, and you're providing this story of these various cultural and economic antecedents to, post, to the rise of postmodern conservatism is the role that interconnectedness might play. You know, so like – on the one hand, there there is this embracing of these hyperconnected media platforms, but you know there's there's the big five personality traits, right? And one of those is openness, and something like a third of people score very low on openness, which is their basically if you score low on openness, what it means in practice is you feel either turned off by novelty and change or potentially like outright threatened by novelty and change. And one thing that has happened, you know, setting aside any of the cultural changes we've seen over the last 20 years, any of the economic changes is just that the world has gotten a lot smaller. We, we are in each other's faces more um, that my friend Julian Sanchez, who will be on this Nozick episode that we're we're going to record in I mean, a month. I just got to go to the little town I grew up yeah. in. Like, I mean, holy shit, right? I, I grew up in Stittsville, Ontario. You know, it when I grew up there, it's exactly what the name would suggest. You know, Stittsville, Ontario. It's like a little tiny place. We had a corner store. We had two bars. Um, 
One of which was, you know, a kind of classier bar, and one which was uh, the naughty bar you went to after 12 o'clock if you wanted to get really ripped, right? And, you know, I went back there just a couple of years ago. Like, there's these big apartment buildings. There's now, you know, all these kind of supermarkets. Uh, and I thought, you know, this is almost unrecognizable. It's only been 10 years. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. The world has definitely changed a and, lot. And so you used to be able to, to use Julian's term, like you lived it with epistemic closure, um, where, and now your, your epistemic closure is, that bubble is popped a lot more. People are... You're you're more aware of all of the weird cultures and diversity that exists in the world, even if they're not in your small town. And I'm always struck by how much like the most kind of the strongest anti-immigrant views, at least in the United States, tend to be found among small towns that don't actually have a lot of immigrants. It's the towns yep. where like it's the people in the cities who are around immigrants are like, oh, immigrants are awesome, you know, Uh how much? Yeah, I mean, once is, you've had Thai food, do you really want to go back? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and so, how much of this is is a story of this thirty percent of the population who scores low on openness basically reacting against suddenly seeing how diverse the world is versus they themselves feeling unstabilized by changes in their own lives. Well, I think that's a great question. I should you know, lay my cards on the table and say I'm not a political psychologist, right? Uh, and I made this pretty express in the book. Uh, and so to the extent that I make psychological ruminations, they're all armchair, right? Um, not Jonathan Haidt, right? I don't have, you know, reams and reams of data, uh, you know, to back up what I'm saying. Uh, but by using perspective on this uh, is uh, drawn from uh, a well-known kind of Marxist psychologist uh, called Eric Fromm, uh, who kind of counterintuitively wrote a very, very, very popular book called The Art of Loving, which I quite enjoy, right? Uh, and one of the things that he says about this is, look, uh, openness has this intrinsic connection to freedom, right? Uh, because what you do when you are open uh, is you say, not just that your freedom and you being who you are benefits you, uh, but also that it benefits me. Uh, and if anything, what I want you to do is become more of what you are, precisely because the Activity where you, uh, you're a free activity, which allows you to become more of what you are, enhances and enriches my life. Uh, and this, of course, can take uh, a very loving form, uh, both in terms of civic friendship, but also in terms of romantic love, filial love, all kinds of different love, right? Uh, and he says that for many people, this desire, this approach to freedom can seem very counterintuitive, uh, because what they associate freedom with is something very different. Uh, it's associated with disorder with chaos, uh, with a lack of authority, uh, and probably most problematically, uh, with the kind of realization that there's a vast array of choices uh, that are available to them. And this can be very frightening to a lot of people, right, uh, who don't want to have to be confronted with too many choices, uh, who kind of want the script of their life to be set out for them. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with being afraid of these things uh, intrinsically. Uh, but when you those feelings become radicalized, right, it can take this form uh, of a yearning uh, to get rid uh, of the freedom that we see in society. And since diversity is a reflection of freedom, uh, it can immediately turn to a desire to rid society of its diversity, right? To establish a kind of uniformity uh, that's usually associated with this nostalgic belief that when everybody acted the same beforehand, everything went better uh, and my life had less chaos in it, right? Uh, and I think that Fromm's analysis, even if you don't like the Marxist stuff, right, uh, is broadly correct. Right. Uh, and you can see this in the kind of attitudes taken uh, by many of these people who just look at the diversity and variety uh, in the world around us. And rather than seeing what I suspect you and I would see, which is, isn't that great? You know, that so many different people are able to do so many different things. Doesn't this enrich our life? Uh, instead, they say it and they say, well, 
this is frightening. Uh, this is a symptom of disorder and decadence, and we can't allow it much longer. So where do we as non-postmodern, non-conservatives, who nonetheless care about the the state of the political world, go from here? Like how – where does where does postmodern conservatism end up? Is it is it as – I guess one way to ask it is, is it as weird as it's going to get or can it get weirder? And is there – a meaningful way that the rest of us can begin to rein it in, given how scary it is that, especially in the United States, it's it's taken over one of the two major parties, which is a big deal. Well, I mean, you ask, can it get any weirder? And I remember in 2017, uh, when Kellyanne Conway said, you know, you have your facts and I have my artillery facts. I was like, well, this is kind of a threshold, isn't it? Uh, and then we pass forward to coronavirus where, you know, the president of the United States was talking about injecting bleach uh, into your body. And I'm like, oh, now we've reached bedrock, right? And now all of a sudden, apparently Disney uh, is, you know, the uh, subject of the next great crusade that we have to launch. Because, uh, you know, if people watch those movies, then all of a sudden uh, they're going to become gay. So I-, I hesitate to say that things can't get more weird because every time I've kind of sat there and thought, you know, this far and no further, I've been proven very, very, very wrong. So I won't say that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what we can do to confront postmodern conservatism, I'll take off my partisan hat and just say that I think that there are two things that we can do, regardless of where it is that you stand on the liberal spectrum, the left or the right. Uh, the first is recognizing that people do need ties of civic friendship and association. Uh, to kind of hold them together. I think where we differ from the political right is the belief that these ties should be voluntary, right? Uh, They shouldn't be opposed uh, from above. Uh, And in our belief that there should be an egalitarian basis uh, to these forms of civic associations, where even if they're not equally beneficial to everyone, they're at least mutually beneficial uh, to all, right? And inclusive. Uh, The other thing that I think that we need to do uh, is provide a higher level of economic well-being and opportunity uh, for people. Uh, And again, I know that there are very different solutions put forward to that on the liberal left and the liberal right. Uh, But I would argue that, look, the statistics kind of speak for themselves, uh, where we know that there are a large number of people that are in precarious situations, particularly after COVID. Uh, They don't see themselves as having much of a future. Uh, They're deeply concerned, even if they think they might have a future for what's going to happen to their children. And we need to provide them uh, with a certain degree of economic stability and opportunity, because that's the way of investing them uh, in their society and inoculating them against the temptations uh, of these kind of revanchist and reactionary movements. Uh, Now, again, we can talk about our left and right wing uh, or left and right liberal kind of solutions to this or libertarian and liberal socialist solutions to this, if you prefer, later on. Uh, But I do think that, you know, we can all agree that some combination of these two is what we need. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt. Next time on Reimagining Liberty, I talk with Nathan Goodman about the ways foreign wars and domestic border militarization feed into each other, why it's damaging to liberty, and what the process tells us about politics and policy more generally. Here's a preview. When people engage in foreign intervention, they're going to learn and acquire some set of skills largely related to coercive and violent social control through that foreign intervention. So during the 1980s, the Border Patrol founded its sort of top SWAT team, which is called BORTAC, and that was formed in response to riots at immigration and naturalization service facilities, but has since been used for a wide range of different types of border security operations, as well as some domestic law enforcement operations. So some of the people who were 
dragging Black Lives Matter protesters into vans in Portland, outside the federal courthouse, for example, were Bortak. And so this gets at some of the mission creep elements, which I think is any sort of coercive tools you develop can then be redeployed for coercive projects other than what you've initially developed them for. So you might say, oh, we've got a really noble mission here that really warrants the use of coercion, then later find that it's being redeployed for some coercive purpose that you think is outside the bounds of what government should be using that type of coercion for. If you'd like to listen to my conversation with Nathan two weeks early, consider becoming a supporter of Reimagining Liberty. Look for the link in the show notes or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe.